Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Welcome to In Social Work. I'm your host for this podcast, Charles Sims. The World Health Organization estimates that over 800,000 people die due to suicide each year. That's about one person every 40 seconds. Social workers often find themselves working in settings where suicide and parasuicidal behavior are of ongoing and significant concern. But how ready are social workers? especially those early in their careers, to address these stressful situations. Did their social work education provide social workers with the resources needed to feel confident in addressing suicide intention? Have the response protocols in agencies that train and employ social workers kept pace with advances in dealing with suicide behavior? Our guest for this podcast discusses her work in helping social workers address suicide prevention with their clients. Rebecca Myrick received her Ph.D. in social work from the Simmons School of Social Work in 2011 and her MSW from Boston University in 2002. Dr. Myrick is currently an assistant professor at the Salem State College School of Social Work, where she teaches clinical practice, human behavior, and research courses to undergraduate and graduate social work students. Additionally, she is a research consultant for the Riverside Trauma Center in Needham, Massachusetts. Dr. Myrick's scholarship has focused on parents' engagement and resistance with child welfare services and suicide prevention work, including the development and evaluation of effective evidence-based training for clinicians on suicide assessment and crisis intervention, as well as postvention work. A licensed independent clinical social worker, Dr. Myrick has worked with children, adolescents, families, and adults in a variety of settings, including outpatient mental health settings, preschools, early intervention, Head Start programs, and the Massachusetts Department of Youth Services. In this podcast, Dr. Myrick discusses her work in developing and delivering a training curriculum for suicide prevention. The curriculum covers material from assessment to intervention, including safety planning. Additionally, she includes a research component that adds a feedback process to assess the effectiveness of the training at increasing knowledge and confidence. Her research also explores were the skills that were caught incorporated into social worker practice. Dr. Myrick closes with her thoughts on what social work might do to increase the competence of social work practitioners in the area of suicide prevention. Dr. Myrick was interviewed in January of 2016 by Carissa Arschold, a licensed clinical social worker and suicide prevention coordinator at the University of Buffalo Counseling Services. Hi, I'm Carissa Ushold. It's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Myrick. 
We're here to talk about her training with practitioners to work with suicidal clients. Dr. Myrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First, I'd like to start out having you tell us about your current research project. Sure. Well, it started in 2012. The National Strategy for Suicide Prevention identified the need for more trainings on suicide for mental health providers. There was this need for more trainings that could increase mental health professionals' confidence, knowledge, and feelings of empowerment they could do a suicide assessment and would understand some crisis interventions. So what happened is a local agency here in Massachusetts, Riverside Trauma Center, that I do some consulting with, read about these identification of need and realized that in the area we needed more accessible, affordable trainings on this topic for mental health providers. So the directors of the trauma center designed this training and asked me to help them assess the effectiveness of this training at both increasing knowledge, which we want to do, but also at increasing mental health professionals' confidence in doing this work because that's really important for people to really feel like, okay, I know how to do this and I can do this. I can ask these questions of clients about suicide, which can be really hard to do. Absolutely. Had you found that people were having a difficult time asking the questions? You know, every time we do one of these trainings, we find that that's something people really identify as something they've learned of how to ask directly about suicide, how to ask more questions about suicide to do a more thorough assessment than to just ask, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Absolutely. So what sparked your particular interest in this topic? Well, I've worked with Riverside Trauma Center for a long time, actually, working as first I ran some trainings, some gatekeeper trainings around suicide prevention for elders. And then as I was in my doctoral program, I did a lot more sort of research support, evaluation, and projects like this. So this really seemed like something I was interested in, and I was really excited to be on board with them. That's great. So you said gatekeeper training. Is that in a specific form? Was it question, persuade, refer, or QPR, or another type of training? It wasn't. No, we had designed one, a training to specifically address suicide for elders, and we went out and went to senior centers and medical providers' offices and ended that training. That's excellent. At this time, what makes this topic particularly relevant? Well, you know, historically, education programs, including social work, haven't really covered this topic in depth or in depth enough. So often graduates of these programs just say that they don't know enough about how to assess for suicidality and how to do crisis intervention. So since often people aren't getting a lot of exposure to this material in their education programs, it's really important that we provide continuing ed programs on this topic, both for people who might want more than they got in their in their professional education, but also for people who might be supervisors of current students and able to teach current students in the field. I think that's absolutely necessary. That's wonderful. So what makes this training on suicide assessment and crisis intervention different for other trainings that might exist? Well, in many ways, it's similar to some that are currently out there. I think one piece that distinguishes it is that it really sprang from this desire to give back to the community to really provide trainings that were accessible and affordable. And the directors of the trauma center have really tried to do that. 
We also try to keep it always up to date. So we really work at incorporating the most recent research in, updating our statistics, updating evidence-based practices. So we really sort of see it as a fluid training that's continually being updated versus, you know, being designed and then staying that way for five years. So if someone were to partake in the training with things always changing, may they take it again? Absolutely. You know, I actually, I can think of one person at a training I was at who works for the larger umbrella agency that the trauma center is under, so she could attend for free. And she said, you know, I'm just coming back. I got some stuff out of it the first time. I wanted to get more out of it this time. That's great. She may continue to come back. Exactly. Maybe she'll come back again and again. So what type of material is covered in the training? We have 12 modules, which really start at understanding suicide, risk factors, warning signs, protective factors, some of the basic knowledge to have about suicide. We also talk about managing reactions. So often mental health professionals will have some really strong reactions to working with clients with suicidal ideation and behavior. So we really try to focus on some reflection around that, what kinds of feelings can occur and how to manage those. We talk more about assessment in depth, so really eliciting an in-depth history of suicidality, risk formulation, crisis intervention. And then we also talk about postvention as well. Sometimes I think that's not included in trainings like this, but we really see it as a piece of prevention. That's excellent. What are some of the things you look at with postvention? So sometimes it's really just talking about what is it, right? I think that the idea of, I've actually had to define postvention for a lot of people, but this idea that suicide, particularly among youth, can have a contagion effect. So it's really important to go into schools where there's been two or three suicides and do some work with the school and with the students to really help them figure out how to support their students and to support each other. Absolutely. I'm part of a walk for the suicide prevention through Out of the Darkness, and I know that postvention is something that, that we've been trying to work with within this community and really try to focus moving, certainly continuing prevention, but also moving toward postvention. Yeah. The trauma center does a lot of that response work, so they'll go into a school or a community and really support the professionals there. So often, if one of the clinicians is giving the training, I think they give some examples of what this work can look like, which I think can be useful. Absolutely. So regarding your research, who is in your sample and where did you run the trainings? So we ran 14 of these trainings from April 2013 to December 2014. We had 598 participants who attended the training. And so what we wanted to do is we really wanted to look at knowledge and confidence both after the training, but I mean, we assume that if you sit through a full day of training, you're going to remember more at the end of it. We also wanted to see three months later, did people retain that knowledge and increase confidence or did it sort of dissipate? So we did a pretest before the training started as people were getting their coffee and sort of getting settled. We did a post-test right after the training had been completed. And then we did a three-month follow-up. We did an online survey over SurveyMonkey and did a follow-up of these participants. So the participants, you know, we had originally designed this training for mental health professionals. We were thinking about licensed social workers, licensed mental health counselors, psychologists, nurses, and we got many of those. We also found that in all of our trainings, we also had people who weren't mental health professionals, which was interesting, people who were just really wanted to find out more about the topic. I think that wasn't quite expected, but in all of our trainings, I'm trying to think of who 
We got some people who were campus police officers at a local university, people who worked for the Department of Public Health, people who were interns or our college graduates working in residential programs who really just wanted to know more about this topic. So that was really interesting for us. That is interesting. It makes me think about sort of looking at first responders or people who are kind of first line when there might be a suicidal crisis. So it's great that they were interested in learning as well. Absolutely. That's what we thought. The other thing that I think was really interesting about who attended was only 55% had attended a training on suicide before. So for many people, this was really their first continuing education program on this topic. So what kind of change were you looking at from pre-test to post-test and then post-test to follow-up? Sure. We designed a quantitative measure looking at sort of basic knowledge, risk factors, information on risk formulation, postvention, and then that also asked some questions about confidence. You know, I feel confident that I know how to do a risk assessment. I feel confident asking somebody about their suicidality, those sorts of things. So it was a 25-item Likert scale questionnaire, pretty quick, because we wanted something that people could do pretty quickly that wouldn't be too disruptive. So we wanted definitely people to leave the training at the end of the day more confident, more knowledgeable. But we also wanted to see it three months later if they remained that way. Now, we also added a couple of qualitative questions, just open-ended questions, because we really, there isn't a lot that's known about this process of learning about suicide assessment and crisis intervention and what impact whether people who are more knowledgeable and confident actually incorporate these skills into their practice. Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters, right, is whether they're using what they've learned. So at the post-test, we asked them to please identify three skills or pieces of knowledge that they learned that were new to them and they thought would be useful in their practice. So we were trying to figure out, okay, what was the most helpful and what was new to you in this training? At the follow-up, we wanted to get a self-report on whether they were using this information. So we asked them if they thought they were, were they using the knowledge and skills they learned in the training? If not, why not? We wanted to know, you know, are you, you know, in an administrative role? Are you retired? Because we did have some people who weren't actively practicing. But if they said yes, we wanted, we asked for an example. How, what are you using and how are you using this in your practice? So you're really trying to figure out, okay, what gets you from sitting in this room learning this material to actually using it in practice? There's not a lot of research that looks at that. Was there any differences between, I'm not sure, with the measurements, if you were able to tell maybe practitioners that were participating as opposed to someone like a campus police officer or someone else that might take the training in regard to how they used it or impact? Yeah, well, I mean, we definitely found that people who weren't licensed mental health practitioners, or mental health practitioners, sorry, we didn't ask if they were licensed, came in with a lower level of knowledge and confidence and tended to leave with a lower level of knowledge and confidence, which we would expect. We couldn't look. We, the numbers, we didn't have enough at follow-up to do those kinds of analyses. We got about a 40% response for follow-up, which was pretty good, but the way the numbers broke down, we just didn't have enough non-professionals to look at that. We did find, though, which was interesting, that people who had attended a previous training came in with more knowledge and confidence, which made sense, left with more knowledge and confidence, and also had higher follow-up scores than those who hadn't attended a previous training three months out. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. What were some of the challenges that you experienced? 
Well, I mean, I think one of the challenge is that we were trying to evaluate a program that's community-based. I mean, at the end of the day, what the trauma center really cares about is getting these trainings out there and working with community members and providing community mental health practitioners with the resources that they need. So, you know, evaluation, it's, it's not research first, right? It's research on community practice, which, you know, can be challenging, you know, getting participants to sort of buy into, yeah, this is really important. Um, I mean, a lot of them were really there because they believe it's important, so that was definitely useful. Can you talk a little bit more about your findings? One of the things that I think is really interesting is what the qualitative or their open-ended responses told us. So when we asked them at the end of the training what was new material that they thought was going to be really useful in their practice with clients with suicidal ideation and behaviors, a lot of 50% of the respondents talked about assessment. And of those, almost half said identified the specific assessment that we use. So in the training, we pass out the CSSRS, and then they role play. They watch the training leaders do a role play around this. They have it in front of them, and then they can take it with them. 50% talk about assessment, and half of them really liked that particular assessment tool, which is an evidence-based tool. Another almost half really appreciated safety planning, and we also gave out a safety planning template. So a lot of people said, yes, they really liked that they had a safety plan in front of them that they could then refer back to. What was really interesting to me was that of the 46% that said safety planning, absolutely new, useful, 21% of those said that the recommendation from the training to avoid contracting for safety, which isn't recommended anymore, and to instead use safety planning was new to them. So they identified this change in practice as something that they were going to then take back to their practice and use with their clients. For me, that's a big deal of saying, okay, we've really showed you some of the newer approaches, and now you can take those back to your agencies. That is really interesting because I think a lot of places may even still have old forms or things around that are standard contracts and we have moved away from that, but not having the knowledge of that, this has really provided something new to them. Absolutely. And you know what was really interesting? I presented on this research at CSWE in Denver, and I had some students in my audience, and a lot of their questions, they were MSW students, was around, we love this material, and we know that these are current best practices, but in our field sites, they don't use these. How do we take this material respectfully to our site supervisors and say, we want to use this newer material? And so, you know, even when you're learning it in school, it's hard if your site, your supervisor, who's really doing so much of that hands-on teaching of how to be a social worker, isn't necessarily up to date on current practices. Absolutely. And we have a lot of trainees at our site, and one of the things we sort of look at is they are really on the forefront of new education and research. So we try to take a lot of what they're giving us, you know, as new changes that can be implemented, and this would be a good case for that. Absolutely. Other things people really liked were validity techniques or how to ask these questions and get accurate answers. And just that thing that we talked about earlier about just asking directly about suicide and having it be a continual conversation. So even some really simple pieces people thought were new and really useful. Within the training or some of the feedback that they gave, did they begin to feel more comfortable with asking direct questions as opposed to maybe indirect? I know that can be one of the biggest things or one of the fears that people have is certainly asking the direct question and having to manage what comes with the answer. 
So I think having the confidence and strength can really build on that. Yes, and I know, you know, that's something I talk about with my own practice students a lot, both BSW and MSW, is you need to be able to ask this question, and then you need to be able to manage the anxiety that might come with whatever answer you're going to get. So, yeah, and that's part of why we talk about managing reactions is just thinking about, okay, well, what what message am I giving to a client if I'm so anxious that I'm now going to skip over your answer because I don't know what to say and sort of how important that piece is. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so you're training them to be confident, but also really looking at some of their own vulnerabilities or the affect that they're experiencing and experiencing it while also trying to ask the questions. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard stuff. It's not easy. Absolutely. So in looking at the safety planning, with the safety plans that you offer, some of the things that people wanted to take back to their practices, was the template different than any others that might be out there? I think it was a pretty standard one that sort of walks you through the escalation of feelings of, of suicidality. You know, I have it. It's, it's the one that I use in my class. But it's it's pretty standard for safety planning. What was interesting to me, I think, was that so many people didn't have one. You know, since it is pretty standard and you can Google, you know, safety plans and see any number of variations come up. So in thinking about this research, what are some of the implications for social work practice and education? I mean, I think as a social work educator, I'm always thinking about sort of what does this mean for us and how we're preparing students. And I think we need to think about how we're teaching practice and even this piece about how important these sort of hard copy forms were to have something in front of you to be able to refer back to. You know, when we're teaching practice, are we sharing those sorts of um, safety example safety plans or example assessments with our students? And, you know, the other thing I always think about is that there are a lot of agencies who do a lot of suicide prevention. They feel passionately about this work. They're very up-to-date on current research. And so that social work education doesn't have to reinvent the wheel, right? I mean, we can do a lot of collaborations with local agencies, many of whom I think will be really happy to provide that kind of education and support for us. I guess I keep coming back to this concern of, you know, are field instructors up-to-date on this? You know, are there ways that we can offer continuing education credits to field instructors, affordable or free, around this topic so that we know that our field instructors, who are wonderful, but are also up to date on this specific area of practice because it's so important. Absolutely. And I think that if field instructors are receiving this type of education, it's not necessarily the student or the part-time trainee having to bring these forms back to the agencies. It's the instructors who may be senior staff level people and it kind of sets a standard of what's used, the centers or the agencies. Exactly. And when we talked to them on the follow-up about how they were using this material, some people did say, you know, well, I'm supporting staff in my agencies. I'm using it to change some agency protocols or programs around how we respond to suicidal ideation and behavior. I mean, I think nobody wants to be using outdated materials or interventions. You know, I mean, we have a lot of mental health professionals who really want to help their clients. And once we can get this information out there, then they're very willing to use it. I think it's also helpful for new professionals or students who are placed there to have forms in front of them that are sort of scripted that allow them to begin to kind of move in toward being a professional social worker. I think 
in speaking with some trainees recently, you sort of look at with experience, it becomes a little bit easier to assess and feel comfortable assessing suicide. When you're new, it's very difficult to do that. So some of these tools can be really beneficial. Yes, I think you're right. To really give you something to look at and use as the foundation of your questions and your assessment as you develop that bit of experience to, to do it, you know, off the cuff, right, where you don't need anything in front of you. Absolutely. If social work as a field is interested in increasing practitioners' confidence in the area of suicide prevention, what would you recommend based on the findings of this study and your knowledge of the literature? Well, I mean, I think we can't assume that all practicing social workers are up to date on current best practices. Um, and I've heard that assumption before from people saying, oh, well, you know, they're, you know, they have a lot of experience. I'm sure they know. And I think some people really do. Some people need some more exposure to the material. Some states are talking about or have already enacted a requirement to take a certain number of continuing education credits on the topic of suicide in an effort to really to get everybody to attend some of these trainings, even people who might not see their own need in doing it. I think just making more trainings accessible, you know, when programs do continuing education trainings, always trying to have one on suicide assessment and crisis intervention, having a, um, programs go out to agencies and do them. I mean, that's what the trauma center does is they often go out to local agencies and they'll do a one-day continuing education training for the people who work there. And I think just the easier you can make it to go to these trainings and get this material, the more people are, are going to be up to date on it. And I think clients are going to benefit, right? The more people who can take those skills back to their practice. And I do think sometimes people come to it because it's a requirement. And I think with that, interest is peaked as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have so many people who come because they're interested, right? Not because it's required, but because this is really something that they want to learn more about. So what do you think are some of the challenges of implementing these ideas? Well, I mean, if you think about social work education, I mean, I think there's often a pushback. There's so much material that programs need to cover that sometimes it can be a hard sell to say, well, we have to talk about suicide too. And we have to talk about suicide not just in a half an hour in one practice class, but across curriculum. That sometimes it's this assumption, there's an assumption that it's the job of the field placement to teach those clinical skills. But again, you know, we've talked about sometimes some field supervisors are fabulous at doing it and other times they're not. And I think there's also just one of the biggest challenges, I think, is the amount of anxiety and fear around this topic. Providers are worried that they're not going to respond correctly or respond safely. I think sometimes instructors are worried that they don't know how to teach this material very well, so they'll leave it to field supervisors. You know, and students are anxious. There's a liability piece, there's the harm to your client piece. And so I really think that sometimes this intense emotion gets in the way of us talking about it as much as we should. And I think there's also the assumption that when students are working in a placement or they're new professionals that we might be assuming they are coming in with these clinical skills, that their program has trained them, that they maybe did take a training, and that's not always the case. So then certainly it does fall on the field educator, and if the confidence isn't there, that makes it difficult as well. Yeah, and I mean, if I think back to my MSW program, you know, I don't think we covered this a lot. So, you know, I think I was a fabulous clinician when I was working in the field, but I don't know that I had the training to then supervise a student on this topic, right? I mean, it's just sometimes it's about the choices that the program made. 
and really thinking about how to get this information out there in a way that's not blaming of anybody, but just saying, okay, we need to talk about this more. And we need to, because the more we talk about it, the less anxious we feel about it. And then our clients aren't going to hear that from us, right? Our clients aren't going to hear, oh, she gets really anxious and worried when I talk about suicidality. I don't think this is a safe place to have this conversation because that's the last message that we want to send clients. Right. You want to set the stage of comfort and confidence and empathy for sure. Well, I also think that sometimes one of the problems is that when practitioners are really anxious, that then when they hear talk about suicide, they're very quick to refer out to crisis services or an emergency room for an evaluation. And that can disrupt the relationship too. You know, I mean, sometimes that's absolutely the right response, but sometimes it's, it comes from anxiety versus a real understanding of assessment and risk. So the more I think that we can address that and help practitioners feel comfortable doing a good suicide assessment, we can have those referrals be about high-risk clients versus any mention of suicidality. Sure. I think it does decrease maybe the need for potential hospitalization or movement to a higher level of treatment. It really can give the practitioner a way to maybe safety plan more efficiently and reduce the client's risk of or imminent risk in the moment. Absolutely. If they have the skills. If they don't, then referral is the only thing that they can do. Right. I think the skills are key. Well, it makes me think I spoke with an intern recently about you know, how I've gained my own skills in assessing suicide. And I thought, oh, it's all experience. And then I realized I've been to multiple trainings that have really assisted me in gaining this confidence. Sure, it has a lot to do with continuing to ask the questions and the experience that I've gained over time. But I think it has also a lot to do with trainings that I've received and certainly new and current research. Yeah, this is a field where I think there's a lot of new research coming out. Right the willingness to be open to that and know that it's ever-changing. Absolutely. This sounds wonderful. So what's next for you and your work? Well, our next step in evaluation is we're thinking what we'd like to do is do a qualitative follow-up of some of the training participants and really ask them some more detailed questions about their experience, particularly around taking these skills, if they did, back to their practice. We got such interesting information from just a couple of open-ended questions on the follow-up that we'd like to do some phone interviews, maybe, you know, 15 minutes, and just ask more about, okay, are you using these skills? Which ones? Why those? What do you think are some of the barriers? What would be more helpful? You know, explore the idea of, you know, would like a booster, short training on this topic a year later be helpful for people to help them remember some of this information and keep that confidence up. You know, what could we talk about more? What could we do to help to facilitate practitioners being able to actually use these skills? Because that's a real gap in the research is really understanding what gets people from learning the material to actually changing their practice. Absolutely. And I like the idea of boosters because sometimes people will, you know, you mentioned some folks are returning and doing your whole training again, and boosters can be helpful because it's a little bit shorter. They're focusing on some specific areas, and you maybe aren't going through a full training. Exactly. We've talked about sort of could we use the website and just put some more material up as sort of another way to access sort of just a booster of knowledge and confidence. You know, a couple of people in their responses to us at the follow-up said, you know, a lot of information. I really need to go back. I need to read it again. I need to look at it again. 
which I think is just acknowledging how much we try to put into six hours. It's sometimes you can't absorb it all the first time. Yeah, you need a second training or a third to really get it. So in the future, how often will you continue to offer these trainings? Do you have others coming up that are scheduled? I know there are some coming up. I don't know when. We are actually going to go to the APA annual conference in Denver in August and offer it as a continuing education program there. They do one-day continuing education programs as well as sort of a shorter conference presentation. So we are heading there in, in August. So we're trying to do it as often as possible and really think about sort of how to train more people to do the training so we can disseminate it more broadly. Excellent. Is there anything else that you can think of that you'd like to tell us about yourself, your work, or anything coming up? I think APA is the biggest one with this one. I guess I just hope that this kind of research really encourages people to think about this topic. I, I feel so passionately about it, but I would love to see more talk about it in within social work education, within psychology education, and sort of how we can support students, our field instructors, you know, practitioners out in the field. Absolutely. Those are good things to continue on and excellent goals. Well, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today. I'm really excited to learn more. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. You have been listening to Dr. Rebecca Myrick talking about her work developing a suicide prevention training and researching its impact on social worker practice. We hope you found it enlightening. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.